Uh, welcome to another edition of the Bandwagon Podcast. And today I am joined uh, by, I would say, kind of a national treasure for the South Asian movement. Um, and I can't give, I can't pick this guy uh, uh, anymore. But he is Mr. Bobby Friction. Welcome. Greetings, Ricky. I salute you, you warrior. <laughs> you warrior, you. No, it's fine. It's finally we managed to get the stars of aligned, and we managed to kind of get this get this going after a. A few kind of weeks of delay, ain't we? Well, basically, I wanted to make sure I had this background. Yeah. So I've actually led you on a bit of a, a merry chase uh, to make sure that I had the background free because, like, this is the house background for all Zoom meetings. Okay. So we actually have to fight and go, you haven't got a Zoom meeting this afternoon. And actually, I'm only joking. But, yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a merry-go-round. But I feel like, uh, you know, kismadigan, yeah. basically. Someone up there wanted us two to talk and connect today, not any other day. Yeah, well, well I mean, uh, to be honest, it, I think it, the stars have aligned because there is quite a lot to kind of get your opinion on. And I've always had it in the back of my mind to say, like, um, you've managed to interview and speak to loads of people. Um, instead of, But I, I've kind of felt I did, we didn't and I've never kind of known a little bit about you in terms of, like, you know, your thoughts and feelings on certain kind of areas. Um, so I think kind of the, 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 the natural process in terms of like the, the past 18 months with the pandemic, sorry, 12 months with the pandemic, how do you think that's kind of had it affected uh, your kind of lifestyle and the way of your thinking? Honestly, I think, um, you know, I, I'm, I've always had really good mental health. Mm. Or let me rephrase that. I've always thought I've had really good mental health. Mm. And uh, I've always been a, you know, a, a positive kind of optimist this last year and a bit whether it's the pandemic or whether it's just the period I am in my life at the moment I've been honestly I've been wobbling mm. you know I've, I've, I've found it tough I haven't found the pandemic tough I mean I've, I've gone through the usual stuff of this is madness this is like world war Two. oh god you know what do I, what do I say in front of the kids oh my god my mum and dad I hope they don't get it and they don't die I've, like, like everybody I've gone through that but Personally, uh, I've I've been wobbling for the past mm. year and a bit, and I don't even know if that's the pandemic. Maybe maybe it just happens when you get to my age and this point in my life. Do you feel that because your line of work, be it in kind of TV, radio, or any other kind of uh, digital uh, uh, news media, so to speak, you're kind of surrounded by people anyway, and then like because you're trying to do the same kind of work, but just in your own company, uh, do you reckon that could be you know part of that, or is it something wider? I think it's both, um, you know, like when we got into the middle of lockdown one or maybe even just after lockdown one, um, I had a lot of my friends saying, love this working from home. It's really good. I'm getting just as much work done. I'm spending loads of time with the kids, all of this kind of stuff. And I just felt like I was in a void, you know, um, in terms of not being around people. Um, of course, I'm a creator. I can create by myself. But I really fizz, and some creators don't, but I really fizz, no pun intended, with the friction of two personalities rubbing up against each other. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a magpie. I'll, I'll, when I work with people, I, I want to know what they think. I'll, I'll take a bit of their idea. I'll, I'll take a bit of their idea. I'll take my idea and I'll, I'll twirl the things together. And anyone who's worked with me, um, especially over the last 10 years, will recognise that it's kind of a collaborative thing. Uh, so that went, you know what yeah. I mean? And also, yeah. 
I, I saw it affect people, other people as well. Other people saying, I'm working from home. It's really good. I'm really enjoying it. And me looking at them thinking, but I've worked with you. I know you. And you are literally not creating at the moment. Or, or you have got such a brilliant work-life balance now that you're at home. Actually, I've lost out a bit because yeah. I've put everything into my radio show. Anything to do with Desi Music, I maybe this is the wrong thing to do. I put every fiber, every bit of my DNA into since I was about 15 years old. So yeah, it's 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 been weird. And it's you know, like the whole thing about lockdowns and the pandemic is whichever way you look at it, it's been the enemy of of art. Yeah, yeah. I no, 100 percent agree. I think a lot of those creatives have uh, I think it's been polarized in it. Either they've been it's very difficult to find that middle. Either they've gone more creative or they've kind of almost kind of hibernated away and waiting for it to come out. Um I mean you mentioned something like you know your behavior in terms of like you could see people being behaving like an outliner. And you mentioned but you're going back to kind of like 15. Had did that did that creative pr process start from then or was there always a feeling that in terms of like the way that your energy around art and creativity was something that you developed later on in life? Now, I always knew I was a creative being. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my generation, I told my mum and dad that they just laughed, you know? Mm. My dad was like, you're going to be a doctor. I mean, look, we actually laugh about it now because I actually say to my dad, I had a massive interest in science, but you never even took your time out to see if I liked biology or, or mm. if I was going to be good at science or if I had an aptitude for it. So, yeah, moving that aside, always knew I wanted to do art, was always brilliant, a visual art, um, not so much music, because I was in our house, it was like, we don't do music, you get me? Yeah. Um, <laughs> definitely drama, all that kind of stuff. For, for me, the driving force has actually been different. It's not been art. For yes. me, the driving force has been the British Asian community. Yeah. And I know this sounds weird, but you know, like, you know, you have a muse, all right? Mm. And everyone's got a muse. I'm not just talking about artists. You know, I'll give you an example from outside of my sphere, all right? I know some guys who know jack shit about everything, but they know everything about WWE, all right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but the point is, is, is it really is their passion. And their passion's amazing. And they know every last little point. It's like all those guys who sit there and, and reel off figures and footballers and, and, and how many goals they scored in, in, in this 1988 season. My football, my WWE mm. was Desi's. Mm. And that's it, full stop. So when I say Desi's, I literally mean British Muslims, British Hindus, British Sikhs, British Indians, British Pakistanis, British Bangladeshis. From the age of 15, I'd literally go, that's a book written by an Asian author. That's a, a series, and uh, it's about, you know, South Asians in Britain. Oh, look at that actor, you know. And so very early on in my life, I got involved with creative people uh, in Hounslow, in West London. And so everything after that's just been me dining out on my WWE stroke football, my obsession. And it just so happens that it's Desi's in Britain. And then after my early 20s, I suddenly realised I needed to focus and I focused in on the music because music was the one thing that literally pulled me into pulled that. Yeah, I get it. I mean, you were talking about kind of your passion being, um, uh, being around the obsession or your 
a positive passion around being a British Asian Desi, the Desi community. Uh, we kind of share something together as well. We both went to Trent University. Um, uh, I, I studied politics. I don't know what you studied in there. What, what did you study? Contemporary arts. Okay, contemporary arts. Okay, that's fine. Did you did you see a lot of the movement uh, from the Desi community coming into those things? And if you didn't, was it a kind of frustration to kind of get art into that field? Like, or what, you know, like have a have that homogenizing relationship together? All right, I'm very old. Okay. No, I know you're fifty this in August, so um, I was going to bring that up later. Yeah, God. All right. Um... I'm very old, so when I when I got to Trent, um, I remember going to uh, there was a, a an Asian sock meeting, Asian society meeting. Yeah, there was twelve of us in that meeting. Yeah, okay. Um, I I was at Clifton Campus. Oh right? yes, yeah. Now, that's that's like technically, some people still argue that's not Trent because it's just so far away. It's like the Isle of Wight, isn't it? It's like <laughs> yeah, yeah. you have either. to actually get on a boat to get there. But anyway, you'd have to get on a boat, but. Um, on campus, there were, I think there were five of us. Mm. You, you get what I'm saying? So it's it, different times, all right? Yeah. And yeah. it go in there going, where's all the Desis? They weren't, you know, apart from Southall College or, you know, like, I don't know, Bradford Sixth Form, there yeah. weren't any educational places with, with lots of Desis. So, and, and, and when I was doing, I actually started off doing communication studies degree, which then moved into contemporary art. So when I started doing my art um i was doing it because there was a vacuum there was nothing yeah, yeah so i was doing art like using the south or riots as source material yeah i was doing art using you know uh, uh south asian culture and, and and british ideas of identity you know the, the the piece of artwork that got me onto the arts course with an unconditional offer was a massive union jack with Gandhi on the front with a machine gun, an AK-47 in his hand, all right? Oh, okay. <laughs> that will give you an idea of, of uh, in fact, not only would that give you an idea of where I was, it's probably where I am right, right. now. <laughs> the, other, the other piece of artwork that got me in uh, was a collage of a holy building, which was a third mandir, a third gudwara, a third mosque, and I had three topless women in saris holding machine guns on the front of that religious building. I think, I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's only now at the age of 50, I go, oh, actually we don't evolve. I'm still the same guy. Yeah. But that, that's what got me in. And that's, that's um, you know, I was doing this stuff because there was a vacuum. Mm. It wasn't like I'm part of the British Asian community. I wonder if I can do something a bit desi and talk about Bhangra. Yeah. It was, there is nothing, there is no one. The other students were all doing economics or politics or, or, or other stuff. So I felt like this whole weight on my shoulders, having studied art, that I want to be the Salvador Dali. I want to be the, the uh, young British artist of brown origin, you know. Um, anyway, yeah, so that stuff wasn't really going on. This was also, I mean, this is how long ago it was. I remember hearing movie over India by Apache Indian on a cassette in someone's halls of residence mm. during the end of my first year. So, so I'm just trying to. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like a scene set in terms of what, what it was like yeah. at that point. So you, it was interesting that you always kind of talked about the burdens and it feels like in every element of your career, wherever you're kind of moving, you've always had that burden on there of trying to be a pioneer, a trailbla trailblazer, um, 
you're very unique in in, uh, in in your thinking and the way that you engage and, and you've you've crossed over in that way i just want to go back into the so where you got you got your art you went through there and then how did that transcend into kind of music and get into that kind of field because i think a lot of people would may not know you from that art side of stuff but see you more like you know define you as an early point uh, in terms of um club dj yeah so this was the early 90s i didn't start djing until 19 late 97 uh, early yeah. 98 so and the asian underground movement which is a, a movement that i really kind of plugged into that didn't really start mm. uh, until 96 yeah. 97 you know um, um and i didn't finish uni till 94 so what actually happened was a lot of my artwork at uni involved music anyway mm. along the way whilst i was at uni i met aki Navaz. Uh, from the band Fundamental and the yeah. guy behind uh, Nation Records. So many of those proto-early Desi bands, away from the Bhangra scene, I'm talking about yeah. Asian Foundation, Dishin, yeah. Sawney, Talvin Singh, they all came through or had some connection with Aki Navaz. And what Aki did was really fire me up around the time I was doing Gandhi with a machine gun, topless. Mm. Sorry to call them topless women. I mean... I painted them as, I, I collaged them as as goddesses. But mm. anyway, sorry, I'm, 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 I'm uh, going off on a tangent. Um, I had this colour and this rage and this art that I was almost vomiting onto, onto pieces of canvas. What Aki did, uh, and also I was really into the music, what Aki did was basically go, yay, amazing you're around, we need people like you. And um, what started with what started off as an obsession with art and to me art means music and it means drama and mm. it means the visuals and it means how you carry yourself uh, then morphed much more into music uh, just because I, I, I think the art had been around forever but the music had been around since I was one minute old you know just mm. growing up in our house and then secondly um, my non-Desi life these days you've got a life right Mm. Bits of it, Desi, and bits of it are white. Back then, there was no mixing up. It was this is my Desi life. This is my non-Desi life. My non-Desi life was massively uh, deep within the the non-Desi music world. So yeah. as much as I was listening to Bali and uh, and getting into Apache Indian and going to Bhangra gigs, I was heavily into goth music. I got heavily into Prince. I literally tasted every musical youth culture along the way. So around about '95. My thing, which was our generations come of age, we need to have our own, our own youth movement, it inextricably tied to music because that's how I defined what white people had done, you know? Mm. Whether it was the hippies, the punks, the new romantics, the mods, even hip hop culture, it was like, we ain't gonna be taken seriously unless we've also got music that comes along with it. And so my original, obsession which was bigging up promoting and celebrating the desi community then turned into doing that almost exclusively through music that's how i got into the asian underground how i started djing and then the rest kind of happened so you, you know you're coming up with almost like you're creating a whole, you're part of a whole new social movement there was a whole new kind of sound that's come through in there did you did you early on did you find that there was any resistance from the typical you know from the desi market from there for this for this for this music and and then how did you kind of overcome that yeah so um 
one of the actual stories of my creative life, and I think one of the stories of Desi music in Britain, which no one talks about, mm. is the class divide. Now, mm. I don't mean class divide as in people in Tabunga are really working class and people into Nithin Sonia are really middle class, because um, it was a bit more blurred back then. But yeah, there was a, a, a lot of opposition from both sides. And also there was a, a split in class. So I'll give you an example. As the, pro, uh, the, the neo Asian underground was happening, by neo, I'm talking about 95, 96, where you literally had in your head, I'm gonna go to a Pangra gig, that's fine. What is a Pangra gig? It's like a family party with extra alcohol, and uh, uh, with no oldies, yeah? yeah? And with a lot of pulling and a lot of getting off with girls and people getting off with each other, all right? Yeah. As, but then on the other side, you had, oh, there's a band called Asian Dub Foundation. Let's go and watch Asian Dub Foundation. Oh, what's Bali doing? That, I mean, that's that's Bhangra, but it's not Bhangra. It's, it's something beyond that. So when that was happening, I remember so much being the kid in the middle, yeah? Mm. So I go to these Asian underground gigs. Now, first of all, a lot of Asian underground gigs had a lot of uh, British Bengalis involved. You know, a lot of it was coming out of the East End of London, the Nusher experience, Gessie Osmani sounds, a lot of those cats who were signed to uh, um, Outcast Records and who were DJing for Talvin at the time, all came from East. So already the, the Bhangra culture is not, nothing to do with them. You get mm, me, right? Mm. Then on top of that, there was a lot of snobbery coming from the Asian underground because a lot of these Asian underground guys and girls were the kinds of people who said, I don't want to go to a sweaty Bhangra gig yeah. and nearly get knocked out because yeah. someone from Slough's fighting someone from bloody Wembley. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you'd actually have this, oh, isn't this great? Because those Bhangra gigs are shit, aren't they? Mm. And I'd always think, no, they're not. Bhangra gigs are everything, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. And... and, and but then the same would happen with the Bhangra gigs where I'd speak to the DJs, I'd speak to punters and it'd be like, have you seen those freaks? Have you seen those freaks? Where you seen what they're wearing? Have you yeah. heard that music? That ain't bloody music. Come on, give me some good manik. What the fuck's that? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so my whole, the whole of the 90s for me was uh, about actually surfing both sides of that coin. And I will say this, you know, when... Um, they were looking for, the Radio 1 were looking for, uh, you know, DJs, and they were looking for people to present this Desi music show, which obviously eventually I ended up presenting with Nahal. Um, my drive from 97, a whole five years before Radio 1 even started looking, was always done by this class divide. I remember thinking, these guys don't understand the power of, of Bhangra and they don't understand the power of Punjabi music and what it's done for us as a people, not just Punjabis, but British Asians in general, because it was the first successful expression of that identity. And then I'd look at the Bhangra kids and I'd go, we can't be stuck in Bhangra. Look at these, these Bengalis making music. Look at this, it's drum and bass. It's, 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 it's creative. Look, this guy, look at Nitin. He's, he's a jazz musician, you know. So I remember very, very early on, looking in the mirror and going, sorry, but going, you're special because mm. no one no one else gets it like you do. Mm. And now looking back, I don't think anyone did apart from DJ Ritu. Mm. She's honestly the only other person I know who, who celebrated everything. Mm. Everyone else aligned themselves with uh, either the Bhangra side or the Asian underground side. So this, 
I could almost kind of feel the struggle in terms of this kind of tribalism where people have just like set themselves in kind of camps, almost political, isn't it? In, in some ways you're in that one, but nobody was prepared to kind of like, there's a struggle of identity then in terms of saying like, you know, it's okay to like a bit of that music and this music and, you know, to kind of that, that fusion to come together. And then that was exactly what I'm guessing from what you're saying, the BBC were looking for at the time. Well, the BBC were just looking for a Desi music show. Music guy, right. And, and I, I was very lucky because I already had a vision. Yeah. I knew I had a vision already because it came out of my DJ sets. I'd drop Bhangra tracks at the Blue yeah. Note yeah. and the fucking speakers and the walls would cave in. <laughs> but then there'd also be a bit of a, well, that was fun. Not from me, but from other people. That was fun, but we're not a Bhangra club, you know. And um, I'd sit there and, and I'd be with my Hounslow uh, dudes, my Hounslow friends, and play them some drum and bass and go, you know, like yeah. literally jump out of the car going, listen to this. How new is this? This is new music. So I was lucky because I had the vision. I already, in 97, I was already thinking, why doesn't Radio 1? Because you remember, you've got to remember the late 90s. Yeah, yeah. Where, where, where in terms of Radio 1, I mean, it was it, it was the space where you had iconic figures promoting iconic music. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, Westwood does the hip hop. Trevor Nelson does the R&B and the soul, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember at, in 97 going, one of these days, one of these days, there'll be a Destiny music show. And very early on, I remember thinking, okay, whoever ends up doing that Destiny music show, they can't be just Bhangra heads or R&B heads. They can't be just Asian underground heads. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe it was my ego. Maybe I was just trying to, in my head, go, none of these guys are ready, I'm ready. But I thought it was a very obvious thing to do. When Radio 1 do a Desi music show, it's going to play all types of Desi music. It can't be one or the other. I think it's going to be, you can't be in this kind of line of work without having some form of ego and an and ego and a belief really in that. Not, not belief in the ego, but the belief in your passion. You know, if, it, if it's strong enough, we all always get to where it was supposed to be. So I think it was like, you know, just as we were talking about alignment of the stars in the first bit, it was probably at that time where the alignment was kicking in. Because, I, I, you know, I, I, I remember one of the first time I ever interacted with you was around about John Peel and, and, and his kind of space of where he was. I used to go listen to like my, my mom used to, you know, we used to get those magazines where you could get free CDs every wherever. And I used to speak to my mom was like, she was born in India, come over and she had like off the wall vinyls. She used to secretly kind of record top of the pops. It was, it was kind of not one of the things to do. And, um, and she had a really massive eclectic uh, list. So I used to listen, when I was a kid, I used to listen to the Eagles. I used to listen to Fleetwood Mac. And, and so I, I used to kind of listen, I used to listen to John Peel. And when he used to put in like some Bhangra, I used to be like, oh, this guy is crazy. And then, then like Westwood started doing, it. and then that's where I first got kind of your name, like it was mentioned around, you know, when you were pairing up. What was that experience like then? And how did jo like John Peel kind of put you in? Well, firstly, can you just explain into context in terms of music, especially British and world music, the position of, and the, the effect, the icon of uh, uh, John Peel? So um, for those who don't know, uh, sadly, more and more people don't know, but uh, it, he still resonates. So John... Uh, was doing radio from, since the mid-60s, all right? And John managed to be at the centre of every nodal point of mu music from the mid-60s onwards. So when no one was playing punk on radio, 
John was playing punk on Radio One. You get me? He was like the king of the underground and also the king of eclectic musical choices. You know, you tuned into any of his shows, essentially you'd just get punk, reggae, dub, bhangra, uh, jingly jangly indie guitar music, world music. You know, I'd, I'd switch on before I got heavily into music in, in, in my early teens. And I'd think, how come I'm listening to classical Arabic music on Radio One, you know? Then you switch on 15 minutes later and, and proper hardcore dub, Abashanti, Jar Shaka, dub, reggae, you know what I mean? Not just, not commercial reggae. So John did that and John was at the nodal point of everything that happened, as I say, from the late 60s all the way through to even grime. He was one of the first guys to start playing. I mean, he wasn't the first guy to start playing grime. Grime came out of the British black community, but in a world where there weren't any proper hip hop shows apart from Westwood show and Westwood was all about the kind of American hip hop at the time. Yeah. John would play grime. So John Peel, the individual, is also a way of looking at life. John Peel is an individual who was born, lived and died like an angel, all right? But his way of approaching music and radio is something that so many of us do. Six Music, the station, is essentially John's manifesto in a radio station. Everything I've ever done on the Asian network is essentially John Peel's manifesto on the Asian network. That's why when you tune into my show, you will be hit with the Northern Sisters, quickly followed up by some drill, some Tamil drill coming out of South London, followed by the latest, greatest Bhangra music, and then next thing you know, you've got some proper hardcore rappers from Uttarakhand in India, you know what I mean, or Karachi. So John Peel, hero and icon, but mm. also a way of doing music. So a, a way of living in that way. It, yeah. From and can music. I just say something, yeah. you know, something you mentioned. Um, when I first started, I, I got to know John uh, pretty well, but the, the most standout thing for me was in the first week I started on Radio 1, it was like a child in the chocolate factory. Mm. I got told, you're going in this room. In those days, you had all the daytime shows in one room and all the specialist shows in another room. So this other room, you know, Tim Westwood, John Peel, uh, Trevor Nelson, et cetera, et cetera, Annie Nightingale, you know, all these people. And I got told, it's like hot desking. That's kind of your desk. You can share it with uh, this other guy who works with John. And so I sat down and on the first day, John Pill walks in and I can't even breathe. Then he sits down next to me and this beautiful face turns around and he smiles and he welcomes me to, to Radio One and then starts asking. And when I say starts asking, I don't mean you're going to play this Asian music. He really starts asking, oh, are you more into a LARP and Apanas and Geet? Or uh, are you more into the 90s sound, you know, Azad and... What do you reckon's better? Birmingham or London? South floor, Hansworth. I mean, this guy knew everything. This old white guy knew everything. And that's when all the facts that I didn't even know started. You know, everything's recorded these days yeah. on the internet. Back then, nothing was recorded. So he'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I gave a, uh, you know, I gave a, uh, a live session. A live session to, uh, I think at the time it was, not Bajangi, um, Premi. You know, or do you know, like, so this guy's telling me that he gave 
live sessions to Premi, to, 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 to some of the biggest and also some of the smallest Bhangra bands out there. And um, yeah, it kind of put me in a very beautiful way in my place. I was like, yo, mm. I thought I was the guy who's arrived to say yeah. South Asian music. And this guy's telling me, uh, telling me about my job and telling yeah. me what he knows, which actually is more than I know. Mm-hmm. So, so you, it, it felt like you find like a bit of a spiritual home where, where you are and, and at that point. How did that journey then sort of transcend, go through Radio 1 and then eventually back go into kind of the Asian network? So I started on Radio 1 in 2002, all right? And um, interesting times, amazing times, some, some possibly some of the best and most rock and roll times ever. You know, like whenever I see someone come in the, their ascendancy and you're like, yo, this guy's a superstar now, or look at her, her career's really taken off. And you just kind of can see um, they're having the time of their lives, right? Mm. That's me and Nahal during the first couple of years after Radio 1, because it was ridiculous how quick it was. You know, we started our show in October of 2002. By, I think, May of 2003, we'd won a Sony Gold Award. Mm. And... Um, it was just ridiculous. You know, we went, I went from DJing around the country. Nahal uh, wasn't a DJ at that point. He started to DJ. We, I went from DJing around the country to traveling around the world with Nahal and both of us DJing mm. within the space of 12 months. You know, it was literally DJing every weekend, getting paid properly to DJ every weekend, mm. DJing at non-Desi nights, DJing at festivals, traveling to Singapore to DJ at WOMAD, traveling and all around this time, I signed a record deal with Sony Records. Mm. Uh, my album Friction got to number one in India. I mean, India's obviously taken over since then. But in those days, I put an, a compilation album out with Mundian Tabachke, Rouge, Don't Be Shy, yeah. uh, lots of Raga, <laughs> lots and lots of Rishi Rich projects, all yeah. that kind of stuff. And because that stuff hadn't invaded India yet, my album went to number one for 14 weeks, wow. all right? And, you know, I mean, this is maybe another podcast. Some of the stuff that was happening around that time was ridiculous. Mm. I was doing gigs in five-star hotels, then going up to my bedroom, and guys would come in, literally with a sack full of cash, and then empty the, empty the sack full of cash on the, like, on the bed. Um, we need to go back. What I'm going to say is, I know this, <laughs> This is probably standard stuff for Jazzy B, you get me? <laughs> yeah. All this stuff. For me, I was just like, ah! <laughs> That baby, just, we made it. You know, yeah, baby, we made it. Uh, 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 also, you know, I'm very partial. I was very partial then to drinking until I fell, fell over. You know what I mean? So yeah. a lot of that whole era is, uh, uh, yeah. is in a haze as well. So anyway, that was going on. Uh, but musically... I was still keeping myself focused. And the reason I was keeping myself focused was because my roots went back, you know, 10, 15 years before I'd even got onto Radio 1. And also I realized moving forward, I had to keep, this is just, you know, maybe the, the narcissism that artists have. Uh, and when I say an artist, I mean as me as an artist, not that I'm an artist or a recording artist. Um, my narcissism was maybe that's the wrong word, but my obsession with my muse was to make sure that I didn't take my eye off the ball, all right? So this manifested itself whereby 
I was only doing two hours a week on Radio 1. It wasn't enough time, mm. yeah? And then on top of that, very different time then. It's Radio 1. We've got to make sure it's not just Desi's listening. There's a lot of non-Desi's listening. We've got to make sure they're happy with the music. We need to contextualise everything, explain everything. This is what Fungra is. This is what Bollywood is. Um, and there was so much new stuff, so many new bands coming through, people making really weird shit, people yeah, making yeah. really Desi, Desi shit. Bhangra stuff as well. And so what happened started off as, um, I think it was, Adol was off, had gone off. I think he took some time off. He was off for, for, for a month and a half or two months. And it all happened very suddenly for various reasons. Mm. So um, <laughs> um, they quickly pulled me in. Yeah. And suddenly I realised, oh, the space of doing a nightly show the space of speaking to people where you don't have to explain yeah. the basics, the space of being able to go, this is a nine minute long Gurdas mantra, which is the eighth song on an album that came out 10 years ago. And next up, here's a beautiful piece of Asian underground electronic music. And then next up, this is great pop yeah. on the next Jagav or the next Rishi Ridge. It was addictive. And then uh, um, I think I did that for two months. Something happened. Adam moved to breakfast, I think. And mm. they offered me the show. And then I suppose then you had the, the, the kind of the, the, the next evolution, the next version control of, of, of frictions, movement in terms of like from the music side. Because I remember, I remember when, when I heard about it, I was like, nah. He's gone from Radio One to Asian Network. I think the perception was that would you would it be fair to say that it was a bit of a downward step that people could see that? Um, I can totally see why people were saying that at the time. Mm. You got to remember, I was in a bubble. I didn't see it at all. Yeah, yeah. I literally was going on that show. I've got to. I mean, it was still great. The Radio One show was amazing, but um, on that show, I have to curate so carefully. I'm cutting off tracks that need airplay, all right? Yeah. But that's fine, because we only had two hours. Then on top of that, you had uh, the creative thrust, push and pull between me and the hall. You know, um, let's just put it this way. I've always known what I want and where mm. I'm going. Mm. And the hall has always known what he wants and where he's going. Yeah. And that was a recipe for a lot of tension a lot of the yeah, time. Of Even though we had real... Um, amazing laughs as well yeah so you know when you put this other then this other show suddenly goes do what you want we trust you just just do it and i had three hours every night i was yeah. able to do an hour, hour someone would send me some spoken word poetry which was mind-blowing i put it on someone would go look at this look at this is the first drum and bass track in bollywood i put it on oh it was addictive for someone like me who yeah whose only mission was to get stuff out there. So I get why some people may have seen it as a step down. The way I saw it, because remember, I didn't leave Radio 1 and then start the Asian Network. Yeah. For about three years, I think I was doing both. Both, right. Uh, um, for me, it was like, um, you know, it was like it was the Asian Network show was real life and your family and your friends. Yeah. And then the Radio 1 show was um, being at work and putting a front on. You get what I'm saying? So you, you, I, I'm not, it's, it's almost like kind of like this is your life at this stage, but it's, <laughs> but 
I, I'm just trying to get into the into the kind of the 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 frame of mind that you're that you're in and, and the challenges because it's sometimes when you look back on things, there's a very kind eyes of revisionism, um, and I think it's important that we kind of like to have it kind of documented the journey of music because it can be typified by you know through your through your experience. You so you've you've come into the Asian network at that time you've obviously found you found a spiritual home or you did before you've come into a newer one which has given you that more freedom you you're you're mentally your mental health is fragile at the time what was some what were some of the challenges that you were face were facing the the uh, organization at the time or the, the radio station that you're going in and and, and how did you kind of tackle them because it, fe- it feels like that you were not up to full strength you were you've come into there physically and you you know this is what I'm going to do but mentally you're shot you've got all these big challenges you were trying to bring these kind of progressive music views and and sound into this kind of um, i would say almost kind of a stuffy radio station at that time what were the challenges to the uh, that you tackled straight away um the challenges were personal and then professional so yeah. personal um as i say you know i defined myself by what i did i had said to myself, if there's ever a Desi music show on Radio 1, I'm going to be the host. And it happened. You yeah. know, you've got to understand how mind-blowing that was for me. Looking in the mirror a week after I got that job and going, you're a Radio 1 DJ playing playing Desi music. I can't tell you. It didn't just... Like, I dreamed of that. That exact job and role, all right? So when I left, it was like going through a divorce. Not it, it wasn't going through divorce as in because when it left it, the end was very clean and very very nicely done. I'd said I couldn't continue for my mental health. They at the time, I think I honestly think they would have would have done it differently these days. They at the time went, Well, you've got to continue doing that, or you mm. can walk. Mm. Uh, so I walked. So the divorce aspect of it was I basically I can only see this now in retrospect. I had a lot of blues for about six months. The blues were, did I do the right thing? Have I walked away? Have I done this? Have I done that? It's just what everyone does, you know, that that whole thing of self-doubting. And, uh, you know, I look back now and I just think, you idiot. You know what I mean? Ultimately, now in this day and age, (laughs) keeping it real is the the biggest thing you can do. You can't fake stuff. But at the time, I was like, oh, have I walked into the Asian network and left Radio 1? Obviously, the Asian network is going to be the home of Desi music. Like, one extra is the home of Black British music. But for a couple of months, I couldn't even see that. Have I done the right thing? Oh, I've walked away. I've, you know, there was also a lot of fear from, from me that I had a mission. I was on a mission, I was on a mission from God. Mm. You know what I mean? I, I did feel like the chosen one in the same way these, these, these football, football managers do. Mm. Not as in I was better, but just like, no, 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 no. My life's mission, and I'm the best person suited for this, is to take all the music and serve it to people and say, here's the music, all right? So there was a lot of, have I walked away? Have uh, I've left it with Nahal. Nahal's not the right person to do this. This wasn't even his passion before Radio 1. There was a lot of that. But that lasted about three months because it was just the mental health of going through it a divorce and waving goodbye. I had post uh, show stress disorder, PSD, yeah. all right? <laughs> about three months. 
And then I'm sitting there going, what's wrong with you? But that's, that's that was only natural. Yeah. I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. You've got three hours. You've got three hours, five nights a week. You know what I mean? You've got 15 hours to create something new. And um, after about three months, the mission started. Was I grumpy for those three months? Massively. Uh, was I a little shit to work with? Probably. Uh, but within about six to seven months, we were firing on rocket fuel. You get mm -hmm. me? Because dubstep was coming through. More and more tracks were coming out of India uh, to be followed soon by tracks also from Pakistan and Bangladesh. The, the, the scene, the Desi scene in Britain was diversifying and people were trying out new stuff. And also, um, you know, it was just a great time to be alive. So that's the personal. The professional at the Asian Network was... Mm -hmm. There was an old guard at that time who are nowhere to be seen now. And they, I know for a fact, a lot of that old guard couldn't believe that the management at the time had given me that many hours mm. because they'd never grown up with that music. They were thinking along the lines of, well, surely you can have all Bollywood on a Monday night and all Bhangra on a Tuesday night. They didn't understand the eclectic nature of what I was doing. They didn't understand uh, that the underground feeds the mainstream anyway. So you can't ever slag off the underground because the mainstream is just the underground two years later. All right. Mm -hmm. They didn't understand any of that. Uh, luckily, time and the industry and the history has proven me right. There's no one alive these days who only listens to one genre. Streaming put even though killed even those people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everyone listens to a mix of music. And then secondly, the line between mad bonkers artists and then established underground artists and then what happens in the mainstream is now fully a line that everyone understands. Yeah. So every time, yeah, and I've just done it. It's happened on the Asian network for me. It's happened literally 20 times over. I've taken artists, people have gone, they're too weird. I've carried on playing the artists and people have gone, oh, they're all right. And the next thing you know, those artists are the mainstream artists. Yeah, the blow up. The blow up. So, do you feel now, in terms of kind of like speed, speeding the kind of that journey on a little bit more, that some of those challenges are still here, present now, or is it? Do you feel your job is getting harder? Job's definitely getting harder, but for two really weird and quite unforeseen reasons. All yeah. right. Now, the first one is just everyone can make music. All right. So, just admin-wise, you know, like. The tracks I get every week, yeah, I'm getting eight, possibly sometimes nine times as many tracks that I was getting in 2006, 2007. You know, me and the hard would have listening sessions sometimes for the next week's show, and we'd listen to seven new tracks. Dude, I did a listening session last night, and I only got 200 tracks in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, the amount of music that's being made is ridiculous. And also the level, and it's just the nature of technology. So back then, just to even release a track would need you to be able to hire out a studio, get it mixed down, uh, either play the music yourself or get someone to play the music. So by the time music got to us DJs, they'd already gone, whether they were good or not, they'd gone through a certain level of yeah. artistic- Filtration. And filtration and interaction. What happens now is, is someone goes, whilst they're eating dinner, I can hear a tune in my head. And by 10 o'clock that night, they've knocked out the track and uploaded it to Spotify. Yeah. Now, 
So first of all, I've got to listen to that because my OCD means there's no way I'm not going to listen to it. I yeah. listen to everything that comes to me, even the real dirty stuff that's not even yeah. a finished track. I have to. Otherwise, I'm going to miss out on the next Riz MC or the, the, the next whoever. You know what I mean? So and no radio DJ ever wants to look in the mirror and go, I got that global superstar and I never played him. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and that's, <laughs> that's what drives me, you know? Um, so, so, so that's number one, all right? And there's lots of problems with the fact that people who can knock out a tune in 10 minutes who aren't musicians do think that they are the second coming. Yeah. So there's this extra problem of, I mean, I got a message last night. I'm going to read this. Let me read this message out to you, yeah? Yeah. I'm not going to name the musician. It's a musician who I've not talked to who keeps sending me music, all right? Now, I do talk to a lot of musicians. I'm mentoring over 200 artists yeah. at the moment. Here we go. Let me just read this. 10K organic views already just on this track alone. This, they've sent me this track. I, I've not playlisted yeah. it yet. Hope you're going to do the right thing and push this song. You know, I'm going to blow up with or without you. It would really be a shame if you still don't support me, but fuck it. That's life. I'm not calling that person out. I'm reading that out to give you an example of uh, how every nearly every, not every musician, but how lots of people think now when they make a track. They make a track, they can get 10K organic views. Yeah. I don't care about views. I don't, I, I literally do not, I don't even look at that part of the screen on YouTube. Why would I bastardize my ability to hear great music by looking at the number of views? So I've never looked at views, all right? What we have, not all of them, but we have a new generation of people coming through who in the past they wouldn't have ended up making music. Yeah, yeah. They're really angry. Those ones are the really angry ones. Look, like, if you don't play me, well, fuck you then. You know what I mean? It's that kind of vibe. So that's what's changed. And the other thing that's changed, and this is just generally, like, it's like what we're doing now. Yeah. With this podcast. podcast yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm an old buddy. <laughs> what, what is music? To me, music's religious. Not religious as in religion. It's like a religion. Music yeah. itself is like a religion. It's beyond even the written word. It's beyond art, you know, painted art. That's how I felt about music. Right now, music is just another thing next to a TikTok, next to a podcast, next to a streaming series, next to a movie, yeah. next to uh, everyone just getting together on a Zoom meeting and chatting. You know, uh, I, I'm not saying it's... It's the same as all that stuff, but it seems to me a lot of people think it is. Yes, yeah, so I think the word dilation uh, comes through. Um, you know, things being kind of diluted in, in in many different ways. Where previously that you were you had so many different religions, but in kind of one house of worship, you know, what I mean? and it was yeah. in, in that way. But I think, would you say in terms of like? this instant consumption, this instant social media fame and this instant kind of um, environment that we're living in is kind of um, almost pushing radio to one side where they'll say, we don't, I don't really need you. I'm going to do it on my own. Yet you still need the radio to play your stuff. Okay. So that's radio, which is different to music. And that's a whole other okay. discussion, yeah, which I yeah. can touch upon. Yeah, so radio is another thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, us in radio, uh, we're also up against this. Mm -hmm. Um, 
we're up against it in the sense that back back then radio was one of four or five things you did yeah that you consumed artistically now radio is just one of a hundred things you can consume and secondly you know some people are like we don't want to hear the dj so you can go i'll stream it yeah other people will say oh my god this playlist is perfect you know what's what's my job i'm a curator i literally am an organic version of of the algorithm that runs spotify yeah and places like that yeah. um some people aren't that bothered about having a proper organic curator they'll let the ai be the curator for them i've let uh, the ai curate my playlist on my spotify yeah. account pretty fucking yeah. sick isn't it yeah. i mean yeah. amazing what it does so 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 on radio we're up against a tsunami of other things that take people away from listening to radio that's insane for someone like me who loves radio but what i really love is music music's radio is just a, me, a medium. medium music to me is one of the most unique things this species has ever invented it's not just part of art yeah it's an art form but music's even beyond dance for me it's beyond poetry music is is vibrational and to me the universe what is the universe other than than every atom in the universe vibrating the life life itself the universe itself is music all right so when people turn around and go i don't listen to much music at the moment i'm I'm watching joe rogan or i don't really you know listen to music anymore because uh, I, i just really really like true crime podcasts i look at them and i just think what the fuck are you on what have you was this how you always saw music just another choice and sadly that is it for a lot of people you know and that's fine because you know who am i but i'm not going to stop evangelizing uh, mm-hmm. about music and music being being one of the highest forms of humanity there is because i believe that i don't think you can compare music to a fucking joe rogan podcast i'm sorry mm-hmm. you can't is that to do with i think you just kind of nailed it in in, in that bit is that I, I would I would admit I'm probably one of those potential people because of time. I'm limited in terms of my time, family time, everything that I'm trying to do. And then I, I try and like use podcasts to try to educate myself in that bit. But I what I did find is as I'm getting older, and this is like, you know, kind of the next bit, I'm, try, I'm almost kind of switching away from some of the, the first loves that I had around like Punjabi, Bhangra music, which has been one of my things. I'm kind of getting more... Once you realise the politics, the the kind of headaches behind it, I just like I just want to be a punter again and just like listen to stuff and and just it's kind of naturally forcing me away. Do you feel that is that that's that case happening and and that I'm just kind of focusing on the Punjabi music at this point? Do you feel that kind of genre is getting kind of smaller or do you think it's ever expanding? Um, so Punjabi music's special. Let's just just yeah. give it that. You know uh, what it's done in Britain, even for non-Punjabis, unbelievable. What it's done for Desi Music Worldwide, unbelievable, which is why you can still be in Bangladesh or Pakistan, in Tamil Nadu, in Sri Lanka, and hear a Bhangra track, okay? In a way that doesn't reverse. It's not that it's better. There's just something within Punjabi music. uh, If before we even take the, we can take the vocals and throw them away. There's something about the swing the organic, earthy elements around the beat, is, which is just addictive, all right? So it's always going to be around. 
on a Desi yeah. Music yeah. level. Um, if you're talking about people who are Punjabi like you and me, uh, who are in the Punjabi music scene, um, a lot of of what it's done in terms of its failures are down to the artists and the businessmen. Mm. I'm not saying the artists are writing shit songs, they're not. The great artists are still writing great songs, but a lot of Punjabi artists will, they won't jealously guard their God-given talent with the respect it deserves. Now, how does that manifest itself? It manifests itself, for example, uh, with a Bhangra artist who I was talking about recently, um, who just keeps releasing tracks. And you just kind of like, even the Bowies and the Princes and the, you know, Lata Mangeshkas, all of these people, they record tracks, but you don't release every track because it dilutes what your offering is. So, for example, Karan Orjula, all right? Everyone loves him. I love him. Um, he's as good as anyone else in terms of the current generation, if not better. And there's an argument to be made that he's, out of this new generation, one, one of the greatest who go on to be a great. But his release schedule and what he releases is a fucking mess. And this isn't him. This is obviously his management or whoever. I keep getting sent filler got an original tracks. I keep hearing one track and going, this is amazing. Within four days, the next track's out. This is not how you run not a business, but this is not how you run a creative enterprise. And this is not how you secure yourself an artistic legacy. You know what I mean? There's a reason Prince, who used to, who had thousands of tracks in his vaults, there's a reason loads of tracks didn't get released. He wasn't sure if they were finished yet, if they were good enough yet. He wanted his artistic vision to come through albums and, and solid statements of artistic intent. When got an Audula, keeps releasing everything that he's fucking recorded in a studio, then what he's doing is he's disrespecting his own creative future legacy. And that, my friend, is just one example of how artists are fucking it up for themselves. Mm -hmm. Then on top of that, you've got the business managers who, I'm sorry, you know, like they, they've literally, a lot of them have jumped into this job from business managing something else. You know, it's no use having someone who can sell chairs and then sell office space and then be an estate agent, then turn out and go, I'm going to be a, a music manager. They might understand how to negotiate. They may understand how to draw up a contract, but they don't understand stuff like that artistic legacy. And if you look at all the great music managers in the greatest music industry in history, which is the Western music industry. I'm talking about the industry and how it was run business-wise. Yeah, there was mad shit going on and there was awful shit. But the point is, is it still made more money and spread globally faster than any other industry. And that's because during the golden era, every single music manager, band manager, artist manager was a music fan themselves. Yeah. Would it be fair to say, though, in kind of... Um in the kind of the artist's defense there, in terms of like, the, it's the consumption rate, the audience is just demanding more and more and more and more. Um, and so the rate of production is getting more and more and more. So it's just like, like just to say, it's kind of almost, um, 
oh, exponentially the same as like yeah. there's all this comp um, competition about who's getting the most views and to get to there that people just producing more and more on that do you think that that's what it is do you think it's the or the audience need to chill out a little bit and just like give space to the artist to, to perform that and or there's this kind of rush of saying look I might only have a small amount of time in this in this light let me just get it out there as much as I can make as much money and then and then go well first of all you know uh I hate that yeah, yeah. the last bit I hate yeah. that because uh if you're an artist surely it's like being an architect yeah there are architects who keep building and who are building for money and need to earn a living and they want to just put up they'll build anything but then you've got those great architects who changed the nature of how buildings are designed. I'm interested in those architects, right? And conversely, I'm interested in those musicians. Now let's take this argument you've just given me about the, the audience demanding more. They demand more because they're consumers, right? You know, I like this, this, this ice cream flavor. Um, wait, I can buy it now every night. But if that ice cream flavor isn't available every night, I'm not going to turn around two months later and go, well, out of protest, I'm going to stop eating it. I'm just going to want it more, right? This, this, is, this is about the business model failing the artist, but also the artists then making a decision at some point that I'm not doing this for the love of it. It's my career. So I have, I have, to, do, I have to approach this like you, you might approach, approach your job working in local government or you might approach your job working for a bank you know so 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 this whole idea that i'm relevant now but if i don't release another track uh, within the next week the audience are going to leave me i think it's yeah. crap yeah. yeah you know that like, like yes you don't want to have six years between each single but um you know you only have to look at the great success stories now and also those great success stories from back then, they weren't releasing tracks every every three or four weeks. And if anything, it's a really shit gamble to do, isn't it? Mm. You know, because a track's shelf life for the average music lover isn't a week. Yeah, it's months, it's a year. And then the great tracks last forever. The, the moment you put out a track and then you put out another track, you've already said to the first track, I could have given you a chance to really become a classic track but I'm going to kill it myself as the artist or as the business manager by releasing another track really quickly. Is this something that you kind of actively promote when, uh, promote when you're, when you're mentoring the, your artists at the moment? Well, yeah, I promote it by not playlisting most of their shit music. <laughs> <laughs> by that, let me rephrase that. Uh, by that, and you, you'll have a lot of introducing artists who will tell you this. They'll, I'll, they'll be on my show or I'll get a track and I'll, 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 they'll be an introducing artist and then that track will get onto my playlist anyway and I'll end up playing it for two months. Then they'll send me another tune and I won't playlist it and they'll kind of go, well, why haven't you playlisted it? And I'm not going to sit there and go, it was really good, but uh, there's no way I'm like, like, it's not as good. So it's not getting playlisted. And that's another thing. See, there's another thing. The gamble in the past used to be, I'm going to release four tracks over two years. I hope all four of them get playlisted. And then at the end of the, the, the couple of years, they go, shit, only two got playlisted. So that even that wasn't working for the artist, right? But now the artist goes, I'm going to release four tracks over the next four weeks. And then when they don't get playlisted, I'm going to release another four tracks over the next four weeks. And then at the end of the two years, I'll have released 110 tracks over the space of two years. Ah, 
if I throw enough tracks at the wall, one of them's going to stick. Mm. So what I do is um, I, I just don't play this stuff unless it's really good. Yeah, I don't sit there and, and go, this track's crap, but I really, this artist is hot at the moment. I get attacked all the time. You've been playing Sidhu for this long. Why didn't you play that track? The attacks around Gunnar Orgula are unbelievable. What you think is the biggest artist in the world right now. Why aren't you playing this track? Look how many views it's got. I don't look at views. I never look at views. If I start looking at views, I totally get why radio stations look at views because yeah. they've got to kind of promote an industry. I myself do not look at views because my offering to my listeners is my ear, my brain. I've curated this. I've done all the hard work so you don't have to. So everything you hear on this show is fucking brilliant. Mm. Do, you, do you feel that you almost it feels like you almost kind of being like a parent for the for the for the music that you're not i think gatekeeper is a bit of a i just that word comes into me i don't like that word but in terms of like do you do you feel now that because of your your journey that you've gone through there's there's a responsibility that you you want to put out proper music in terms of like putting away from the the views actually having a filtration an additional filtration system to to give to the audience yeah, actually, you know, things work in a weird way. Before you could have said gatekeeper, back in the early days, I never saw it as gatekeeper. I saw it as, I know you don't listen to as much, the average listener, I know you don't listen to as much music as I do, so I'll do all the listening and I'll curate for you. Now it's different now because there's streaming services and there's YouTube and everyone's got this playlist and people are exchanging tracks via WhatsApp. What people want now, in the absence of human curated music, is a human curator. So actually for specialist radio DJs like me, we're relevant again without, not we're relevant again, our services are needed without, without us even having to change much. Back then, it was, you can't access most music, I'll access it for you. Now it's, you can access everything, but you can't see the wood for the trees, so I'll do that for you. I'll sift through that for you. So there's still a role, and 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 I feel that from my listeners, you know? Mm. So, you, again, so that's what I mean by you've got that, that parent one to say, look, this is my experience, this is what you're listening in to me for. And you know, like I'm choosing these tracks because there's something about it. I'm not. I'm not looking at the kind of um, the buzz around uh, the views or the artist or the uh, the genre of music. It's just the way that you're th just through your experience now. And you think the audience trusts you for for that, yeah? Yeah, because uh, sometimes you have to hold people's hands. You know, uh, something comes. I'll give you a great example. Um, the Indian and Pakistani and Bangladeshi rap scene, I'm talking about rap coming out of the subcontinent, not British Asian artists. Yep. That I could see just as it was starting, uh, it's been around for years, but just as it was really gaining momentum four or five years ago, I could see that that was an unstoppable scene. Yeah. It's massive now. It's, it's, it's ridiculous how fast it's grown, all right? But I knew British Asian people wouldn't jump into it instantly a it's rapping in language b um there is a certain which is dead now by the way but back then there was a certain kind of looking down our nose at freshies looking down our look look at this look at this kid in india all skinny you know 
put the trainers on. What's he doing, yeah? Um, but now that seems massive. I had to so curate that experience for my listeners. I had to think about the track I played before it and after it. I had to think about where I placed the track in the three hours. So someone who loves Bhangra and loves British Asian music and likes a bit of Desi R&B and a bit of Desi pop could be led slowly but surely into that scene without me just going, here's loads of really hardcore Indian hip hop and them switching off. I'm, t- I'm trying to frame this next question in a, in, a, in a way, but it's my perception to start off with. I've kind of felt in the last 12 months when like, following you that you've almost kind of justifying your existence in terms of saying like your, your experience, that your value into this whole, whole scene. Do you, is that a fair? Is that a fair a fair assumption to make from like from what what you've written, um, and 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 if it is, why do you, why is that? Okay, so I don't understand what you're saying. So you're gonna have to re-explain yeah. it. Are you talking about because you've mentioned twelve months? I've been talking a lot about how I feel South Asian musicians are not taken seriously by non-desis was it that or is it something else i think it was i think it was one of the oh i had i had the tweet and maybe i'll be able to put it up on there to show it but i think he was talking about the value of your experience of what you've been through and understanding of justifying like your experience of being a south asian dj and what you could bring to the kind of wider kind of uh oh i don't know i don't know you're trying to give it you school me in terms of like the difference of media and radio and stuff but you know, to the kind of the British white folk in terms of saying uh, that, does that, is that better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was just trying to work out if I was justifying myself to desis or justifying myself. I mean, what I've done a lot of in the past 12 months, just because it's it's been brought up time and time again, yeah. is essentially, um, I'm angry, Ricky. Yeah, I right? think that was, I think I was trying to be as diplomatic as I can and trying to buy time so I could find that tweet, but Go ahead. Yeah, you're you're angry. I'm I'm angry. All right, and the reason I'm angry is because um, when I first started, I never thought all these years later we'd be sitting there and still be in a bubble. And it is a bubble, right? It doesn't matter if the bubble stretches all the way to India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and takes in Canada and America. Within this society white people, black people, people who aren't of Asian heritage, they don't give a shit. Not all all of them, but the bigger culture doesn't give a shit about what's happening. And and on top of that, I feel like they don't give a shit about our experience as a South Asian experience. That's why the multiple and rich tapestry of the South Asian experience in Britain, which is now 40 to 50 years deep, still flashes like this on TV. You get what I'm saying? Mm. I mean, it happens to all people of colour, and it's really happened in a brutal way to black people because they created so much of what passes off as white culture and mainstream culture. But with us, we're deemed invisible by everyone. So when you go and speak to non-Desis and you say to them, what is British Asian culture or South Asian culture? It's literally curry and mundi and tobajke, mm. you know? And, and, and I say this as someone who struggled alongside black people 
back in the early 80s when we were collectively known as black. We weren't black, Afro-Caribbean, African, Indian, Pakistani, Hindu, Muslim, Sikh. We were all black, yeah? And all I'm going to say to you is, is you have all this pain that black people have been through, all this horror and cultural madness that happens to their culture because it's borrowed and stolen by, by the white establishment. But our story hasn't even got off the ground. You speak to the average non-Desi person, they have no idea. They just know that there's shitloads of brown people in this country. They might know a bit about Bollywood. They might know, you know, like, uh, oh, they might start going, well, actually, do you know that it's mostly Bangladeshi people who run Indian restaurants? But that's it. They have no idea of the nuances of what's going on in this country. And what's going on in this country is British. Stories about Hindus, Muslim Sikhs, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Bangladeshi, Sri Lankan heritage people in Britain are British stories. And we're invisible. Mm. And do, do, do you think that's, that's why what... I'm angry? Sorry, Ricky, that's why I'm angry. Yeah. That's why I've been so angry over the past year, because I have the benefit of looking back and going 25 years and we moved one millimetre. Yeah, because my, my my next question was, uh, you know, before you you went down that road, naturally, was that have we made progress? And I think, based on from what you're just saying, you kind of find it's it's hard to find the words to say, yeah. No, we haven't. We haven't made yeah. progress, and we haven't forget. We ha have we made progress within the culture at large. We haven't made progress between each other either. Yeah, because there are so many. South Asian people, look, I, I make a complaint like this on, on social media and someone, someone brown will come back and go, what are you talking about? Every newsreader is Asian. And, and they say that as if to say, you're wrong, stop complaining, we should be happy with every newsreader being Asian. I'm not talking about newsreaders. In fact, I want to ask, why is every fucking newsreader Asian? Why are there so many thisies in, 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 in news, on yeah. News 24, on Sky News. It's great we're successful there, but what's stopping the music, the culture and everything else? The, the, look, what defines a society here and now and in history and in perpetuity is their cultural output. British cultural output has so little South Asian involvement that a, two or three centuries from now, people will never know we were even here. Mm. That's fucking ridiculous. Is that what you really believe? That you think that it's got to that level that they want will be just kind of a, 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 a blip or a dot? How do how do we how do we understand the nineteen forties or, or the eighteen hundreds? We look back at the books right. and the music and the culture, yeah, and the architecture. You know, I, I don't know, maybe there's an architect out there who, who already has a vision for what British Asian arch architecture is. I'm just saying, generally, if you move forward 200 years, you'd have to look at the top 100 books, the top 100 albums, the top 100 TV serials, the top 100 uh, uh, films. You're not going to find any Desi stuff in any of that. So we may as well be invisible to future generations. Mm. Was that the kind of the fuel that that's that you've used in order to um you know you've done several tv documentaries is that kind of one of your ways in trying to tackle this issue 
Yeah, but even that's really hard. So you know the Bhangra okay. dock, yeah. pump up the Bhangra. Um, I I got that dock. It had already been commissioned. All right. I went in and tried to get a three-part series commissioned. The three-part series, what was going to be on Desi music in general. So it was going to be 60s and 70s, Bidu, uh, uh, all the folk music we brought over here, uh, the emergence of Bhangra to the 80s and a bit of the 90s, the full Bhangra scene, that Bhangra documentary you, uh, you saw. And then the last edition was going to be kind of Asian underground up until now. All right. Um, it didn't get commissioned. And then the, what they said was, was, oh, there's a Bhangra documentary that's been commissioned and we're having problems with finding a presenter for it. Luckily, I got that. And I was able to shape shape the documentary in the way I wanted. But, dude, one hour. One hour in how many years? Unless you pick up the odd piece on a, night, a news program or the odd section on a magazine program, that's one hour just on a bhangra in the last 40, 50 years. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Why isn't there a whole, a whole hour just on Bombay Jungle? Why isn't there a whole hour just on a knocker? Why isn't there a whole hour just on the music coming out of Brick Lane and Joy Bungla and all that other stuff? Yeah. So, so, so that's yes, of course. That's why I'm making these docs. It's not because I want to be a presenter, even though I'm a presenter. I'm not yeah. making them because I want to go, yo, I made a TV program. Ask anyone who knows me. I made those because. I understand, and most people understand, if you didn't make the doc, it didn't fucking happen. And if it didn't happen, then it ain't real. <laughs> I'm actually in a state of panic at the moment um, because, you know, some of the stuff, I, I mean, I didn't realise, and you, I've never thought about the arguments, what you put in, in, in this way. And what I feel like is that we're, we're going to need a few more frictions in, the, in, in, in terms of thinking um, to do that. Is there enough evidence that you that you've seen or experienced or you've come in contact with people like yourself in, in that in that way of thinking? Um what's nice at the moment is is I do feel like there's a lot of people coming through. Yeah. So I feel a real affinity with what people call gener generation Z, the Zoom generation. Um I really feel an affinity with with how they want stuff recorded, their relationship to their culture. Um, you know, like I, we used to call ourselves second generation. These Zoomers are like fourth generation, third, fourth generation. Um, from what I can see, uh, th they've got a lot of their shit right. They're very inquisitive. Everything's got to be recorded because they are the digital generation. That's already a step in the right direction and they have this obsession with their culture you know like um with us we thought our mums and dads were really uncool so then we created our new culture yeah mm. they don't seem to think their mums and dads or their grandparents are really uncool they think they're the coolest people ever i love them for that yeah um i will say this not that i'm separating z from millennials or generation x because it all it's all amorphous anyway and creative people will always come out and do what they want I don't understand why the millennials didn't take what we'd set up and ran with it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I feel like maybe it's trauma. Maybe it's something else. But I do feel like there was a lot of, okay, this is what it is and we're going to carry on. Whereas I think 
Generation Z, this new generation, know that there's a sickness in the system and they want to fix it. And I see that manifesting itself with people wanting to find out about their history and then record it. I see it manifesting itself in, in everyone wanting to be a writer, everyone wanting to make a podcast, everyone wanting to talk about what South Asian culture is. I mean, even that word South Asian, I love it because we call ourselves British Asian. These tags are important, right? Because they, yeah. they show you how we look, how we view the world. We viewed the world as uh, the, the brown space, as a brown space. A lot of the people who came after us said British Muslim, British Sikh, British Hindu. And for me, that was never going to work because we do have a shared culture. And I think, if anything, that's what has slowed down. Whereas now with this new generation, they constantly refer to themselves as South Asian. So they've come back to this way of thinking, which is we might be Hindu, Muslim and Sikh. We might be Punjabi, Tamil, uh, uh, Sileti, Bengali, all this kind of stuff, but we are a one. So I see it with the DJs. I see it with the authors. I see it with the people who want to make films. I see it with these, these people who just graduated history degrees and I can tell they want to become historians. So I am confident about the future, but uh, I'm definitely going to be the canary in the coal mine screaming foghorns, alerting everybody to the fact that we're going to get to a point soon where the last 40 years will disappear when mm. people like me die. Yeah, I was going to, my next question was about asking you what's coming up next. So I don't really want to finish it on in terms of like, <laughs> you're going to die. Um, the next 12 months are going to be a really important time in terms of like, in this country and our culture in terms of emergence how do we bounce back from the pandemic what do you think is kind of uh, the, the key areas that you think we should kind of focus on as a collective as south asians and especially for yourself okay um as a collective we need to take these new shoots that are coming with this new generation doesn't mean only they do it everyone does it we literally go on on the attack yeah my generation went on the attack. We were even more invisible. We're the ones who created Bhangra culture, you know, British Asian culture, Asian underground culture, the playwrights, the authors, they came through us not giving a shit about the mainstream and saying, we're going to do this. We've had the reset of the pandemic. And now we've got this new generation in, in who want to digitize everything and who are so interested in the generations above them and their struggles. So we go on the attack. And, you know, I tweeted today, I said, what's needed is unity and celebration. And we don't have that. I'll give you an example. When you think of an Idris Elba, when you think of all of these young black actors and people coming through historians, you, you know they're doing their work, but you know they, they're part of a whole. You get me? Mm. You can totally draw a line between drill and grime coming out of council estates in South London and an actor being nominated and winning Best Supporting Actor. And that culture celebrated on both ends. Those drill MCs who are only 16 will literally go, yo, Look at our boy, Daniel. Look, he's got an Oscar. And he's going to celebrate it that way with his Oscar. That's not happening for us. Do you know, do you ever hear of a really big South Asian news presenter, TV presenter, 
author or filmmaker actually celebrating the music scene? It doesn't happen. No. It's it almost happen. kind of being just kind of shunned away. Don't want to be associated with Dude, I've got colleagues who are big now. I'm not going to call them out by name because they know we're going to have these conversations and we've had these conversations already. I have, I know people, multiple people who've come through the Asian network who've then gone on to bigger and better things. The moment they left the Asian network, they left the Asian music behind. Mm. Yeah, that doesn't happen within the British black diaspora. It doesn't happen because they understand. So when we come back now, we come back with unity and we come back with strength, yeah? I want that author to recognize that musician. I want that emerging musician to recognize that TV presenter. I want that filmmaker, all of them to interplay with each other because that's what the black British community do. And it's one of their biggest strengths. And it's one of our biggest failings. And you can't blame white people for that. You get me? That's us. That's very powerful, Bob, honestly. Um, it, you could just see, some, you know, just the, the different areas that you haven't thought of. You're just emerging your ideas. You can just see kind of like your, your train of thought. Um, Bob, this is the, um, it is the bandwagon. So this is a, an opportunity that I give all, all, all the guests on there to say, if there's anything that I've missed, or any bandwagon that you want to kind of talk about, this is your opportunity. No, the only bandwagon, uh, and I've already mentioned it, but I'm going to say it again, is um, we are being erased. We will disappear unless we take action. Just like the climate emergency, there's a South Asian emergency in the diaspora. If we don't act now, then we will disappear. We, We will still physically be here. Our grandchildren will be here, but they won't understand anything in the same way other communities do so if that's an emergency get to action people your troops yeah it's not a culture war it's a war but not against anyone it's just the way culture extends itself you're a troop you're 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 a soldier get ready start fighting otherwise move out of the way bobby thank you uh, really appreciate it. There's a lot of food for thought for everybody listening. Um, appreciate it, mate. All the best. Thank you. Thank you, Ricky. Much love to you, bro. Cheers, man. All right, done.